All right. I'm here. I'm alive. I made it. <clears throat> Good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm excited about this morning and being able to share. It's just a gift to be able to share every time. Um, and especially this time, I just there's just an extra, I think, layer of um, just humility. And I just don't even feel like worthy to, uh, to speak about this. But at the same time, um, God makes us worthy, right? Jesus makes us worthy. So all that to say, this morning, one thing, as I was kind of praying about what to speak about, um, I just was just felt led to talk about what's been going on in my life recently. What has God been doing in my life recently? Um, it's a great place to start. Kind of the idea of you can't give what you don't have. Um, here's something that's happening. I can give you that. But all that to say, also, it's fairly recent, some of the stuff I've been processing. So it just is like a little bit extra sensitive for me to talk about, which I was nervous about. But I just feel like I couldn't, as I was praying about it, I just couldn't escape. Like, no, this is really the topic that I should talk about. So all that to say, um, this morning, the passage we're going to read from is out of John uh, 8, 1 through 11. So if you want to turn to that or get your Bible apps out, I believe it's in the handout possibly as well. Um, and I encourage you guys listening online as well um, or listening. Um, you know, it's hard to follow along, especially with me, because I can jump all over the place if you don't have the uh, scripture out. So I know I've <laughs> some of my friends have been like, man, it's if I, had, if I just had the scripture, I'd probably be a lot easier to listen. So I want to make that disclaimer here. But the, this morning, we're going to get to that passage a little bit later. But I wanted to preface uh, kind of where are we going um, in this passage? Uh, where are we going this morning? And what I really want to talk about this morning is transformative change. How does change happen? Um, because I think that... It's, I, I, if you're like me, it's more elusive than uh, you want it to be. Um, and it, that kind of goes into the first idea here is that really Scripture talks about being born again. Like a big concept in Scripture and change is being born again. Jesus talks about it a lot. Paul talks about it a lot. Um, and you're going to find it. It's actually, ironically, it can be a point of contention for those that claim to follow Jesus and those that do not, um, you know, we make these grand claims, you know, Jesus changes our life and all this stuff. But oftentimes, uh, again, if you're like me, sometimes the evidence is just not there that that is the case. Um, so it can be confusing, right? What is, well, what change are we talking about? It, does it really happen in all this? And I think even I want to say that um, I, I think... I've studied religion a little bit in my life, and most religions do also have a similar concept that change, in order to have some form of happiness, whether it be nirvana or to achieve peace and peace of mind or whatever it is, some sort of change has to happen. And let me go back to my notes here. And I, I hope that, yeah, I hope that we can all agree about that, that uh, change 
Like change is something that we want. And yet, I also want to make the point this morning that it's not so hard to really, or it's not so easy, it's not so easy to get a hold of. Um, sometimes it can feel like you're grasping at smoke or air. And for example, like I wanted to kind of jog our memories or help you guys to uh, put yourself into this idea of change this morning. So like think of some, some ways that you have wanted change in your own life, right? For example, like we want to be smarter, we want to be wiser, we want to make the right decisions, you know, and you, you tell, you kind of, at the end of the day, sometimes you're like, man, why can't I just make the right decision? It's, it's not that complicated, right? Or sometimes for most of us, like, or a lot of us, myself included, uh, motivation. We want more motivation. <laughs> it's like, why can't I just do uh, what I want to do? I want to do this, and yet where is the motivation? Um, another place for, like, we want to be more fit. We want to be healthy, you know, whether it be uh, physically or emotionally, spiritually. And it's like, you, you kind of say to yourself, why can't I just uh, do what's good for me? I can't even just do what's good for me sometimes. Or like the, the list can go on and on, right? Success, endeavors, why, you know, you try and then you fail. Um, or even things that you, the, a good one too to think about is like things that you wish were different, right? You wish it was different or you wish it had been different. Um, you know, why does this have to happen this way? And I say those things because I really want us to get into that place where, um, like I said, I hope that we all can agree change is something that we desperately maybe want, and yet it can be so elusive. We can work so hard to gain the things that we want, and yet sometimes those things don't even meet our expectations when we get them, right? So um, one, one place, so again, just going with some of the, I want us to have these ideas before we go into this passage. One place that I notice and I'm sure you guys do too, where uh, notice where change happens, you know it happens, uh, it happens like without a doubt, is when you know pain or upheaval, great pain and upheaval, they cause change in life, right? You go through a loss, you go through a death, you go through a change, uh, something happens to you, and from that moment you realize something was, and now it's different. And why I want us to want to pose the question of why is it that it often takes this great pain and upheaval in our lives for change to happen? What is that? And part of what I don't I don't want to claim to say all the reasons why, but one of the reasons I think this morning that's relevant to us is that um, I think that perhaps. Um, what, what's happening is there's a truth. Truth is happening in our lives. Something changes and truth happens. And I think one of those truths that often comes out of those big changes is the truth that we're not actually as in control as we had thought. You thought you had this down and then something happened and you didn't. Um, you thought you, you know, knew what was going to happen, and then you realize, no. <laughs> uh, 
uh, it was totally not what I thought. Um, and this actually is a, this actually, this concept is, is a, in this phrase, they say about addicts, they say about addicts that the best thing for an addict is to get caught. Because for an addict, it's like they are thrust into this truth. <laughs> and they thought they had control, and then all of a sudden, they realize they don't. And I think some of the, some of the language that uh, we use in recovery is like, uh, or, or, or here, I'll say this. An, an addict, right, you get caught, and it pulls you back into reality, I think is a good way of saying it. That pulls us back into reality. Reality, truth, right? And to me, the reality, one, some of the realities are the reality that we are actually powerless against our vices, right? There's a sense of powerlessness that we, that we see. And then also, it's a reality alongside that that we alone are responsible for ourselves. No one else can take responsibility but us for ourselves. So... Um, I think that that's part of what is happening in change and why does it take these huge moments for change to happen. Um, <clears throat> and I just want to talk about for myself, like in my life, um, I'm very familiar with addiction. I have had to fight addiction in my own life. I have many friends that I have lost to addiction, um, whether it be substance abuse, you know, of some kind or codependent relationships, um, and much of the time we feel like a great deal of pity and whatever, we, we feel bad for them, the, the suffering that they're going through, the pain, the despair that they feel, and those are good, like the pity helps move us into action, right? But I actually want to put a spin on this this morning that I actually think that, well, I'll say this, that recovering addicts, maybe not addicts, but recovering addicts, I think actually have somewhat of a leg up on maturity, spirituality, life, because of this concept of change and being thrust into reality. So I want to like pose that to us this morning, that perhaps that is the case. And also I want to pose as well that I would argue that most all of us are addicts at some kind of level. Um, another way to say it is like compulsive behaviors. We all have some sort of compulsive behavior that we seem to not be able to control, things that we feel, basically things that we feel powerless to change. Um, and maybe <laughs> you're even at the place where we see this oftentimes, perhaps we've conceded that um, they are, there's an area or part of us that shouldn't even change. You know, we've decided now this is a part of me. It is part of my identity. It cannot be removed from me. And yet, I think if we're honest, those things, or why is it then do we continue to damage the ones that we love, right, to damage ourselves? Why is it then that do we continue to avoid the past? You know, we continue to hold on to unforgiveness, resentment, um, and those kinds of things, they literally, they infect our very chemical makeup you know, depression, resentment, unforgiveness, avoidance, they literally can affect your brain chemicals and your body makeup. <laughs> so, um, again, all these different ideas, I, I really am trying 
this morning to tap into what, how does transformational change happen? How does this real change actually happen? Um, and I want to put up the first three steps, the 12 step actually, um, which is interesting. I'm sure many of you are familiar with 12 step. Um, it's globally, you know, there, there, <laughs> there's a 12-step meeting in ev basically every country and every town around the world at any hour of the day. Um, it's become, in the last 100 years, you know, this very uh, proven system that helps change happen. And it's interesting because if you look at this first three steps where the beginning of this process happens, <laughs> look at this, number one. We admitted we were powerless over our addiction, that our lives had become unmanageable. Number two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Number three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Now, think about this right now. I could have just put this up without even saying it was a 12-step, and it might have been a fun experiment to see if we would even recognize it, but... The reason why I say that is because reading through these, you kind of look and you're like, well, that doesn't really have that much to do with being an addict. I mean, maybe that one in the beginning, but you could just change powerless over uh, our vices, right? Over sin. Um, and I would say that these three things are pretty universal. They're pretty universal. I, would, I will stand on that. I think anyone in life should probably go through <laughs> these three steps. Um, and, and most of us, I think, in our life and walk with Jesus, th these, this is what's going on, right? This is essentially what's going on. One second. got to take a drink. So, all right. We're making good time. This is good. I'm almost to the bottom of the first page. So, uh, interesting thing about those first three steps. I hope if you never looked at them, that uh, I hope that was enlightening because they're really, really good stuff. And what they say in, in recovery work is that, you know, 12 steps is really just, it's just practice for healthy living. That's essentially all it is. Um, so I want to go, I want to also talk about, because I think we're talking about this without talking about it, is this idea of control. You know, I think maybe a lot of it boils down to control. What do we have control over? Um, and again, to bring it back home, imagine in your life right now, imagine um, a time where you have experienced a moment in your life where you truly realize you did not have control. You know, can you think of a time where it struck you that you did not have control and you thought maybe you did? Again, it happens a lot of times in loss. Um, so another way to look at it too is perhaps like control within ourselves, right? Um, I wrote this down like, that even against our best efforts and against our, our best intentions, we still couldn't protect the ones that you loved from evil, and maybe especially from the evil that came out of yourself. 
Why does that happen? Why can't I make the change? Why do I not have control? Again, you look at the first three steps. The first step, we admitted we were powerless. So um, here's kind of gets into part of my story. And I want to talk about this morning uh, a moment that happened recently in my life where I really feel like I just experienced this very transformative um, change and experience with God. And yeah, I want to talk about how, what, unpack that. How did that happen? And it really ties into the scripture that we have this morning. But uh, so going back to me, maybe you're like me as well. Abuse, loss, pain happen in our lives, um, perhaps at an early age. And we're not quite prepared. Neither do we have the facilities to handle those things, right? Um, abuse and addiction happen in my life um, basically as early as I can remember. It's hard for me to even remember prior to those things. And um, I didn't know how to protect myself, you know? Um, the, th- the problem is we do protect ourselves somehow, right? We don't know how, but we do. And a lot of times the way that we tend to try and protect ourselves leads to those compulsive behaviors, leads to, it's all insulated in addiction in, in, in a sense. And again, I want to preface that addiction can, a good, a good definition that I like for addiction is any codependent relationship, any codependent relationship with a person, a behavior, or an action, or a substance, right? Any codependent behavior, uh, relationship with a person, a behavior, an action, a substance. Um, so I would argue, like many of us, we, we have these compulsive issues and we want change to happen. Um, so again, going back to shielding myself, right? Like for me, in my childhood, I learned to shield myself, but it was not in the best way. Um, and again, I don't know if you're like me, I hope some of you guys are and can relate to this, but there are parts of myself that I have shielded and have been shielded um, from reality for essentially an entire lifetime. And uh, what is the problem with that, right? What's the problem with shielding yourself, bringing yourself in, in and insulating that with some sort of compulsive behavior in order to meet the need that you think you're going to try and meet, but it's not working, right? Uh, the problem is when you shield yourself and you quarantine a part of yourself out, off and say, well, this part, we're going to put that away. No more looking at that. It's, it's in the past. The problem is you end up also shielding that part of yourself from God. You, it is down there and you're not touching it. And it's not like as if God just doesn't know it's there or something, but we ourselves, you know, try and practice this control and we don't let God in there. And you think about it, the, the problem is we on our surface, we experience God's grace, we experience his love, his light, his forgiveness. But the problem is there's those parts of us that are not getting to experience that. And that's what happened in my life. Um, I, the, I kind of lost my 
place here. Uh, yes. So that, that's essentially part of, I, I want to preface this this morning because I want you to get a glimpse of, of, well, what's happened in Bryce's life. This is part of it, is that recently in my therapy work, in my recovery work, this has kind of surfaced. Um, and I knew that there, I've dealt with this before, but it was a new layer. <laughs> um, and it was interesting because the part of myself, I think from the past, was allowed recently in my recovery work to really come to the surface. Um, and it, it was interesting because my attitude towards that part was not very constructive. <laughs> um, and that's really the problem, right? Um, those are things that we don't want around. I, didn't, I don't want it around. I want it to just go away. Um, and I, you know, definitely, I didn't want to be super explicit this morning, but <laughs> that's not really the, uh, the umph and feeling that, like, I don't know how to describe it, but um, there are some strong feelings and words that I have for that part of myself and the, the past in me. Um, and it's interesting because I think that we think this, that um, if I just get rid of these parts, essentially hate these parts of myself and pass long enough, if I just bury them deep enough, they'll just go away. And it's interesting because I think a lot of us could relate to that, but if you... I've had to come to terms recently with the, with the idea that I actually do not have control over the past. It seems like a no-brainer, but I think the, sometimes we actually act as if we believe somehow we could control the past. Um, why else do we shove these parts away and not look at them and whatever? It's, I think for myself, I was essentially trying to change what had happened. Now we can change, right? We can change our perception of the past and how we feel and think about it, but we can't change the past itself. We can't just get rid of it. So I'm in my, I, I'm in a therapy session recently, and I love my therapist. He, he used to be a pastor for like 40 years. He's an awesome guy. Um, and I was telling him this of like, man, I can't believe that this is here and how much I don't want it to be here. <laughs> and he said to me this thing, and I want us to think about this because it, really, uh, it really sunk deep for me. But the first point in our, in our, our, our met, the first point today <laughs> is this idea that, and this is what he said to me. He said, Bryce, you know, and I would say one of, but God's goal is to liberate us from sin and the penalty of sin. God's goal is to liberate us from sin and the penalty of sin. At first, this, again, on the surface, this can look like a no-brainer. The problem is the way that we act is not, the way, is not like we believe this. The way that we act is that we believe the opposite. That God's goal is to punish us for sin, right? Punish us for sin and, not, and keep us trapped in it. That's often how we act. 
as if we believe that that's the case. And what a shift in our thinking if we actually acted as if we believed this. And it just, it hit me so hard in that moment in a way because I think, I think there was a few things happening. But for one, you know, I have dealt with this, this idea in my life on many occasions and many times. It's part of what I love about God, right? The problem is, in this session, in this time with my therapist and this time in my life, those parts of myself from the past who have not dealt with this reality are now beginning to deal with it. They now have risen to the surface and they're contemplating this reality, right? They have been living, the sad part is that part of myself has been living with a vastly different reality. And so he says this to me, you know, I'm like, oh, I got to write that down. I mean, but it's so simple. It's like we, it, the Bible says this a thousand ways and a thousand times. So I'm just sitting there and as I've explained all this to, to my therapist and again, I, I want to, before we get into this, but I want to bring back the idea of being born again. Like I said in the beginning, right? Jesus talks about being born again several times. And being born again, I mean, it maybe to take the Christianese away from this, this uh, phrase, being born again essentially just means like to become anew, right? To be born, literally born again, right? Jesus tells Nicodemus, in order to, <laughs> to follow me, to be in the kingdom of God, to co- enter eternal life, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, what are you talking about? Because it's such a bizarre idea, but change, drastic change, you know, I think often looks like that. It's maybe another way to say it is death into life. Something died and then something else came into life. So I really think that that's essentially what was happening to me in this process and in this part of my life right now is that there's been these parts of me that have been allowed to reach the surface and they finally have the opportunity to consider this reality. God's goal is to liberate us from sin and the penalty of sin. And, you know, some of the things I think that parts of me thinks is, it thinks like, can that, that can't be true. That can't be true. I think it thinks, um, surely there's some evidence against this, right? I've got a lifetime of evidence against this being true. Or maybe it thinks, uh, how could God want to help this part of me? Yeah, I believe that he, he feels that way towards the good parts of me. But how could he really, truly want that for this part of me? <clears throat> See, those parts of us, they experience the light and the truth, they experience it like a newborn baby. It's shocking, right? When the baby's born, it's absolutely shocking. They're using their eyes for the first time. They're using their lungs for the first time. You know, in, in childbirth, it's like all about the first cry. It's shocking. 
And I think it's shocking to have thought something your whole life only to realize that it was living in a dream world quarantined off from reality. Again, this idea of change happens when we are thrust into reality. So going back to this story, he says this thing, my therapist says this, and then he says, I, don't, I can't even remember what I said, but he said, can you think of a time where Jesus proved this? The idea of, of God liberating us from sin and the penalty of sin. Can you think of a time when Jesus proved this? Because if Jesus proves it, you have a lot of you have a lot to come up against, right? How are you going to come up against a man who accomplished what he did, what Jesus did? You know the truth and reality that he speaks into existence. And my, th- I, I was just kind of in shock, I think. And he just said, "How about the woman caught in adultery?" And I was like, "Yeah, that's probably that's a good one." So let's get into the passage this morning after I've just explained my whole life and everything. Um, So John 8, uh, a woman caught in adultery. This is a very short, John 8, 1 through 11, very short story. Um, And it kind of just happens and then um, we move on. And we don't even know necessarily how the story ends. Um, so John 8, follow with me. We're going to read out of the New Living Translation. I really like New Living, um, not necessarily for study, but it really does help you, I think, get into the story um, and imagine it vividly. Um, so it says, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. So Jesus uh, Speaks at the temple. He does a lot at the temple. It's where he gets into a lot of trouble often. Um, Because the people that don't like what he's saying the most, um, the people that have their hands clasped on control, uh, are there, typically. So, as usual, a crowd soon gathered. And he sat down and taught them. So Jesus has has a gathering and a crowd. He's teaching Verse 3, it says, As he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, here they come. Um, And some people think that either way, whether it happened recently, just before, or whatever, this often happens. And the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to get at him. So maybe the day before or whatever, they were upset. Jesus said something that they didn't like. And they're like, well, we're going to get him tomorrow. Let's plan. We're not going to sleep until we figure out what we can do, right? So (laughs) the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, the experts, mind you, brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. And they put her in front of the crowd. Before we go on, I just want to unpack this with us this morning. Um, for her to have been caught in the act of adultery, um, it's kind of bizarre to think about. Um, Maybe she had a record of this, and that's why they could catch her. I don't know. But either way, what we know 
Um, and I don't want to get into necessarily the whole thing of, well, you know, why are they catching her in adultery and did they set her up and all this? Sure, I think maybe. But either way, what the story tells us is that this woman is literally caught red-handed guilty. There's nothing she can do. No, no defense against it, especially in this culture. This was like one of the worst things that you could be caught doing. So this is what they say. And imagine, I get, uh, before we go on, imagine being this woman with, uh, it's, it's, it's inter- interesting because when we read the story, it's almost like we're meant to feel bad for her. And that's, I, I do feel bad for her. But it's interesting because she totally is guilty, you know. But think of how, oh man, like uh, degrading and just ashamed. <laughs> I don't even know what you would feel if you were her in this situation. They brought her and put her in front of the crowd, right? And look at verse 4. This is what they say to him. And they don't often address him this way, but they're going to right now because they want to get something from Jesus. It says, Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? And again, taking away the uh, Christianese, to stone essentially means to kill. The Old Testament does say this. There is a Levitical law that says, that this is uh, the penalty of this sin is death, not necessarily stoning. And part of the reason why they're trying to trap Jesus is Jesus is going around preaching forgiveness, preaching forgiveness of sin um, and, and repentance and all this, not judgment. Although he doesn't, you know, he's very much about truth and reality, and they know. Well, he's going to say, it's going to say it the next sentence. But they know that if he does do this, then he'll be kind of going back on his word about forgiveness. And they're trying to ruin his reputation, right? But they also know that he has to do this. His judgment has to be this way because that's what the law says. So they have him in a trap, a very well-organized and planned trap. I don't even want to think about the manipulative nasty things that the Pharisees did to try and make sure that they had this woman on hand for this situation. (laughs) But look at what they say, right? The law of Moses says, stone her. What do you say? Verse 6, they were trying to trap him. Again, they were trying to trap him, saying something they could use against him. And look at what Jesus does. The ultimate just, uh, I don't care. He just says, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. The reason why I think that this is a puzzling statement and a lot of people try to, a lot of people try and think of what is he doing? What's he writing? All this stuff. We don't know. But we do know that it does mess with the Pharisees and the teachers of law. Because look at verse 7. They kept demanding an answer. So essentially Jesus is kind of like ignoring them. Um, they're putting him on the spot and all this. And the thing is, Jesus never loses his cool, you know, in a sense. Like, he's not intimidated. He's not threatened. He's essentially kind of acting as if, like, what is this? You know, like, I, what are you, what's going on? 
So they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, look at the genius of this. It's just pure genius. <laughs> all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then look what he does. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. Essentially going back to, hey, I got this figured out. You think that you're going to trap me? You can't trap God, right? It's interesting. When I was reading some commentaries about this, some people uh, translate the original language meaning that what Jesus is actually saying is those who have not committed this specific sin. There's not 100% guarantee of that, but imagine if that is the case, that Jesus is literally calling them out on their BS, that they possibly have literally committed the very sin that they're going to get this woman stoned for. It's like hypocrisy at its height, right? And even still, Jesus' words are still true. Let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And he knows exactly what's going to happen after that. He does not need to do anything more. <laughs> Look at verse 9. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest. Right? <laughs> the young, maybe they still have their youthful pride and thinking they can fool everybody. But still, beginning with the oldest, even the young leave. And until, look at the next phrase, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. <clears throat> so there still is a crowd present. There still are people here to witness and to experience this with them. But the accusers are all gone. It's if you can put yourself in the story, it is astounding to imagine somebody that has that kind of authority and just ability. It doesn't make sense. I can't imagine myself doing that, I guess is one way of saying it. Even, it, it, even in my greatest moment, I cannot imagine being doing that and having that, like, ability to think of that and do that. I don't, it's, it's unexplainable is what I'm trying to say. And I think even for those critics of the gospel and the gospels, John writing this, I don't think, it's harder for me to believe that an uneducated random fisherman wrote these words and thought of this story to just make up. It just, that's, that's even more far-fetched than it actually happening. And especially think about this. Let me just add to that. Everyone in this crowd would have, if this happened differently, everyone in this crowd would have seen it and experienced it differently. And yet this is the story that's, that is passed down to us. This is the story that everyone knows is what happened. So anyway, moving on, rant over. Verse 10, um, so they're left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And verse 10 says, Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Sigh. 
these beautiful words. Said the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? It's so, again, like, you have Jesus fooling and foiling the experts. And in the same moment, (laughs) you have Jesus being so personal. (sighs) And um, he's not being um, distant. He's asking her a question. You know, a question implies there has to be an answer. A question implies interaction. It's easy to just come and preach at someone and tell them this or that. It's much different to pose a question to someone and interact on a personal level. Look at verse 11. Right, did any one of them condemn you? And she says, no, Lord, she said. You could read into this, but she calls him Lord. Very specific language, right? Why would she say that? As far as we know, she doesn't know him. She's never met him before. And at the end of the story, it just says, and Jesus said, neither do I go and sin no more. And Jesus essentially leaves her. It's interesting because the thing that Jesus asks her is impossible. Like we've been talking about this morning, Uh, why is it that change seems to be right out of our grip? Why does it always seem to evade us? She's no different. And yet Jesus says, go and sin no more. Go and do this impossible task. So I walked through the story uh, with my therapist, and it was interesting because after the end of it, I was just like, hmm, I probably should should go process this. Uh. (laughs) Um, Because I just knew that there was was some truth for me there to discover in myself. So it's interesting. That's not the moment that really I felt like God did this transformative work in me through the story. Although that may be where it began, well, let's not get into that. But fast forward to a week or two later, as I've been reluctant to process this story, because as we do, uh, we don't want to look at those things. We don't want to look at the past. We don't want to interact with those hard things. And uh, fast forward a week or so later, I'm, I'm sitting on the couch with my wife, And um, we are on the verge of a communication breakdown. (laughs) 
right? Uh, the communication is breaking down slowly. I don't even remember what we were talking about or whatever, but I remember in this moment, it must have been something about this, I remember in this moment that I hadn't shared with her what I've been processing in my recovery work and this story and all this. And so I began to recount some of what I've been telling you guys this morning with her. And I was like, yeah, look at this story about the woman caught in adultery. And I don't know how to explain it, but I'm going to try to this morning. But I think sometimes when we speak out into reality and process with others, especially those that care about us, allow us to be vulnerable, allow us to uh, be real with who we really are. There's something mysterious, I think, that God made us for community in that way to where we almost are like, uh, we almost like are like little Jesuses for each other. It's like it brings us into reality. It brings us into the realness of what you're processing. And I'm explaining all this to my wife, and I just am just floored. I, <laughs> it's one of those moments where I, I think you, you only have a few of them in life where somehow it just, God taps into a deep part of you. And I'm recounting this, I'm trying to recount this story with my wife of what happened. And it's in that moment that I essentially realized, like, I am this woman. I am in this story. And I felt like it was almost like the Holy Spirit gave me this ability to just transport me into the story. And it was like, the very words that Jesus said to her, he said to me. And it just, <laughs> I, I think part of it, again, going back to what we talked about before, I think it was part of it is because these parts of me are beginning to surface. I'm beginning to interact with them, try and figure them out, try and help myself. And I'm just trying to allow God into them. And like I said, being born again, it's this process, this shocking process of new reality and new life. And this part of me for the first time is entering into this story like I have never before. And I realized like, I am this woman. Like I have literally been caught red-handed. I am guilty. I'm all too familiar with like my own, my own choices and evil that comes out of me and the things that I do. I'm all too familiar with that. Like I just said before, there are parts of me that I wish it just did not even exist, right? Think about it. She is essentially out of control. She has lost control. She's on the, her life has become unmanageable, right? Like the 12 steps. Her life has become unmanageable, even to the point where she is on the verge of death. Like you cannot be more out of control than that. Right? She has been thrown into the crowd, and she's about to die. And her choices, now, again, you can't 
get in, I don't want to get into this morning about all the other evil things around her that caused that to happen as well. But regardless, her choices have led her there. And she needs a power greater than herself to save her. She has nothing that she can do. <clears throat> and I think I'm like her. There are things I've done that betray everything about me. <laughs> and that you sit there baffled at, how do I... How do we have the capacity for this kind of evil? And equally, there are things that have been done to me that have wrecked me, like, to my soul. Um, and just like her, my attempts at self-protection, she needs protection in this moment. She's going, this is the end. She needs protection. My, need, my way of protecting myself is not working. Why do I still hurt the things that I love and ruin myself? The, the, my attempts at self-protection have led me to essentially destruction in my life. And just like her, I have neither the power to salvage my situation, neither do I have the power to change how I got there. Just like her, Jesus transported me into this moment and said, this is you. <laughs> and I think it's incredible because if you look at the story, who was the one who could have thrown the stone? Who was the one who could throw the first stone? Right? There, there's no... <laughs> Even Jesus says the first. He doesn't say every stone, right? Which could have been, I don't know, uh, like essentially saying that if Jesus decided to throw the stone, so could anyone else. And he was the ones that hold the key, right? <laughs> and who is the one who, who saves her? It's the one who holds that power. It's just mind-boggling to think about. And it's... <laughs> I don't know how to say it. it shattered my reality, like I was saying before, of what I've lived in, of like God wants to penalize us for sin, and he wants to keep us trapped in sin. It just shatters that reality. This story is the complete opposite of that reality. And I think I was, that part of me was just allowed to reach the surface and process this, and God just... I think the Holy Spirit just does this work in us where he puts us into, into reality with Jesus. And I think that this story effectively proves that reality, that God's goal is to liberate us from sin and the penalty of sin. Think about it. Not only did God protect her, right? He protected her. He stood up for her and effectively protected her. He was not held captive to her accusers, right? He defeated them. But then he says this thing at the end, and he says, go and sin no more. And Jesus is making the claim, right? Essentially, he's making the claim that somehow he has the power to liberate you from sin itself. He's making that claim in, in that statement, I think this is a story, the story of Jesus is about a man who essentially accomplished 
accomplished this where no one else in history could. And very simply, we have to decide ourselves whether we buy that or not, you know? And I think going back to the whole thing of the, those divided and quarantined parts of ourselves, part of what's the process of being born again and transformative change is allowing all those parts of ourselves, even the ones we don't like, to come and experience the, those realities with God. That takes a tremendous amount of courage, healing, acceptance to, to do that. But I think that if we're honest, that's what we want. Going back to the 12 steps, you know, look at, look at how these three steps mimic this story. We admitted we were powerless over our addiction, that our lives had become unmanageable. Her life was unmanageable. She was literally in a powerless moment in that, in that story. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. She calls him Lord, and she has put her trust in him, essentially. And she has come to believe in a power greater than herself. And then three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand him. This is the part where it leaves us. Maybe on purpose, this story ends here. Because I want to post to us this morning that this is where we're at. This is the choice that Jesus gives us. And the thing, the, I, I don't have a ton of practical things this morning, just the idea that to, to process for yourself, where are you in this story? And you're not allowed to be Jesus in the story. Sorry. <laughs> right? You, you're not allowed to be Jesus. Uh, like I said, there's no way any of us, nobody could do this. You only have two options, and it's so beautiful how Scripture leads us here. Are you the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? Many of us, I can tell you 100%, I act like that so many times in life. They literally are holding on to control, and they're judging this woman for something that they perhaps have even done themselves. It literally is like this masquerade. <laughs> they have not done any of the three steps, you know? They are, in, they are claiming power. They are managing things, right? They believe in themselves as that power, right? They're not sane because they literally are living a life. That is insane. They were, they were trying to kill someone for something that they could equally pass off for themselves, right? That's literally like insanity. And they have not made a decision to turn their will and lives over to the care of God, right? We could be like them and be, I, I guess to bring it full circle, grasping at change, claiming that we could get it somehow, but actually, have they changed at all? No. They literally are as guilty as she is. See, the, between the two, there's no difference. The only difference is that she is thrusted into this reality of, 
of deciding whether she's going to trust Jesus or not, and they have to decide for themselves in a, in a way. I guess they are, like Jesus thrusts them into reality too, claiming that they, I didn't think about that, but yeah, I mean, he kind of does the same thing to them. But then the other side are, <laughs> just think about this for a moment. You're either them or you're the woman. <laughs> Which one would you rather have? You know, it's not necessarily a nice choice. The woman is literally, she's, she's caught guilty, red-handed. She is not in control. She doesn't have her life managed and all this stuff. And yet she is beginning the process of like being born again. So I want us to think about this morning. I want anyone listening online, if you can, try and get into that story. Um, and I'll just wrap up here because I'm going long, but... Um, again, like I don't know if you're like me, but I have lived most of my life believing I was the one who had my back. You know, no one else was going to have it, and that is just sadly the narrative that um, was seated in me. And I don't have much to show for that. And I think. You know, I'm done trying to do the impossible like the Pharisees are trying to do. Um, I, I, I think, yeah, Jesus essentially thrust me into this reality that, you know, I, I think he is the protector. I think he is effectively the protector. He'll do a good enough job. It's our job to trust him, right? It's our job to, like, walk into that. All right, that's all I have this morning, but let me pray for us this morning as the team's going to come up. I know we're running late, but we're going to sing this last song. Um, and I just encourage you guys to use this time to think about where are you in the story? Um, and we're also going to do an uh, uh, offering. So let me pray real quick just to wrap us up. God, thank you for um, just your word. Thank you for these stories that have been passed down um, of Jesus. I, um, I think that we're just, in a sense, like it's hard to even imagine how like we are so unworthy to even have them and yet you give them to us, God. And I just pray that for all of us listening and being here and everything, we, we do have a moment where we can contemplate some of these things. Where we can have a moment of humility Um, have a moment of reality that of who you are and where that puts us and where we are, God. Where we might want to be. Yeah, and God, we just bless the offering this morning. Um, we just put that in your hands to use it how you would want, God. In Jesus' name, amen.